0: Here, the call to worship out of Psalm 66 today is to remind us that God does wonderful works. The psalmist says, come and see and come and praise because our God does wonderful things beyond our expectation. And one of, the, one of the things we have to notice looking back in history is that those wonderful deeds are often not seen as wonderful at the time when they come. So if you think about what the psalmist is saying, they cross the sea the Red Sea on dry land. Well, at that very moment, they praised God, but it was only a few moments later where they cursed him because they were hungry and afraid. And we're often like that. We forget that our God is a good, wonderful God who does awesome deeds, and it is profoundly Christian to rejoice always. That's what Paul calls us, on, calls us to, whether we see the fulfillment of what God is doing or not, whether it looks like suffering or whether it looks like telos, the end to which he's drawing us to, because by faith we trust that God is bringing us unto the end, whether it now looks bad or good. If you would pray with me. Father, this morning we rejoice before you. We confess that you are a good and wonderful God, that your gifts are good. And today, Lord, it's easy to see that. We see the pronouncement in our country of what's good. And Lord, we know that that's not final. There's ups and downs, and Lord, you will bring suffering as you bring us through to fulfillment. So help us to trust you, to learn the lesson that you are a good father who gives good good gifts to his children, to rejoice so that we can rejoice in the midst of suffering, so that we can trust your plan and your will. Lord, speak to us today as we look into your word. Transform our our hearts. Mold us into the image of our Savior. And Lord, may our words be acceptable to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. If you would, turn, turn with me to the book of James. We are at the end of chapter 4, and so we're going to cover the last five verses of James chapter 4 today. This is not a section that's difficult to read. It's, it's somewhat easy. It's one, though, that, that we frequently and can easily gloss over. So we're going to look at a few variations on this theme, thinking about its context here in the book of James and then its applications to different sets So, if you would, we're going to read today beginning in James chapter 4, verse 11. James says this, Do not speak against one another, brothers. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy But who are you who judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, say this, if the Lord wills, We shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore to the one who knows good to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire." It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mow your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth. You have fattened your hearts in the day... Uh, sorry, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death... The righteous man, he does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets to the early and late rains. You, too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brothers, against one another, that you yourself may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. We'll stop there for now. And in thinking about this, the the context of our passage today, I read this part because I want you to notice that it's enclosed in this command, do not speak against one another, brothers. And the reason is because God the judge Is coming. There's only one lawgiver, there's only one judge. And as we see in James chapter 5, verse 9, the same words do not complain, brothers, and again, against one another, speaking against one another, because if you do, you will be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So everything in between. We have to read through this lens that God the judge is knocking at the door. He's just about to come, and for the readers in the book of James, that's important. It's both an encouragement and it's a warning, and it speaks to the two sections in between. So verses 13 through 17 and verses chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 go together, but they're separated sections. You can see that by the call, come now. Come now, come now, you who say, come now, you rich, weep, howl, mourn for your miseries that are about to come upon you. And they're cast in the light of Jesus the Judge standing at the door, knocking, and he's just about to enter. And so, as we read these, remember that for James's readers, this means two things. It means that if you stand in resistance to the God who made the heavens and the earth, if you are the one persecuting his people, the Judge is standing at the door be warned. If you are the persecuted, be encouraged, because God the judge is standing up at the door. He's just about to take out your persecutors. And if you are the persecuted, be warned, do not be like those who are persecuting you. Do not be like the rich, the the traveling merchants who stand, and do not regard the will or the plans of God. So over the next two weeks, we'll cover these two sections. We'll see how they go together, and we'll make a few observations that lead into that along the way. Our section today, verses 13 through 17, seems a little bit easier to, a little bit more palatable than chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. If you read that language in chapter 5, it seems quite poignant, especially if it's written to believers, come now, you rich weep and howl. Or your miseries are going to come upon you, but what I want you to notice is that these two sections they sound prophetic, they sound like the prophets so when when the minor prophets are saying, God, the judge is at your door to Israel, they say things like this: "Come, weep, howl, mourn, because God the judge is standing at the door. come now. And so in our section today we'll keep that in mind, and there's some applications. Uh, arriving out of that, but first, what I want to do will quickly look at an outline of the the logic in verses thirteen through seventeen, and then the reason why he uses some of this imagery. So one more time, now just looking at verse thirteen, he says, "Come now, you who say." So James, as he's done before, he's painting a picture, and he doesn't tell us specifically who the you is. But remember, back in chapter two, he. He entered an argument with a foolish fellow, the foolish fellow who said, said something like this, and it may be that people are actually saying this. We say things like this all the time. Um, but f- for now, it's a, it's a picture of a, a person unidentified. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city, spend a year there, and engage in business and make a profit. So James is just painting a picture for us. And at first glance... Uh, I don't know about to you, but to me that seems like a rather benign statement. Maybe if you add some context to it, 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 it seems a little, a little worse, but you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to travel to a city and we're going to do some business and make a profit, well, isn't, isn't that what most of us do? Maybe we say we're going to stay in such and such a city and we'll spend some time there and we'll make a profit. I did this 12 years ago, I said I'm gonna travel to Minnesota, I'll be there three years, I mean 12 years, and uh, I'll make a profit. And by God's grace, I, I did, I was able to supply for my family, but James takes issue with this statement. Today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. The words in this verse it's about a traveling merchant, a, a, a businessman who's going in, And the words specifically are about that traveler. You can think back to our last section last week. Remember that, that one of the words for slander is the one who goes about. So he's traveling from city to city and, and, and he's, he's gossiping his way through the land. And this idea of traveling is going to go with us throughout this section. And so we'll travel to such and such a city. We'll spend a year there. And then we're going to engage in business. That is also the word for traveling. But in this case, there's there a modifier on it. So we're traveling in. But the other times that it is used, and we'll go we'll look at those in just a second, it has to do, again, with, with business, with making a profit, but in a negative sense. And so we'll, we'll look at that in just a minute and make, make a few points. But the idea is to make gain. But James says you say this, but here's what you don't know. You don't know two things. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. So his first point is you're ignorant. And that's true of all of us, right? You do not know what your life will be tomorrow. You don't know if you will have life tomorrow. The future is veiled for us. God gives us some glimpses into it, but we do not know what tomorrow holds. Proverbs 27, Solomon says something, something very similar. He says, don't boast in tomorrow because you don't know what tomorrow is going to give birth to. And so for this, for this businessman who's traveling about, he's, he's planning on making a profit, he says, you don't know. So don't boast in that. So you're you're ignorant, verse 14. You don't know what tomorrow will be, what is your life. You are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So his second point is you are transitory, you're temporary, you don't last. So you're both ignorant and your life is a bleep. It's like like smoke, mist in the mirror that as soon as you look at it, it, it dissipates. And it sounds an awfully lot like, like what the preacher says in the book of Ecclesiastes, everything is vanity. It's, it's a mist. You try to shepherd it, you try to catch a hold of it, and it just it runs away from you, and our, our lives are like that. And it's hard to see at the beginning of life. Life looks like a big expanse when you've lived for five minutes and you have, on all likelihood, a few hours left. But as you go through it, it, of course, it starts to look shorter and shorter as you approach the end. Life is temporary. And so he takes these two statements and he says, this is why. You don't know what tomorrow is and your life is like a vapor. It's like smoke. It appears for just a little while and then vanishes away. And both of these have to do with our relationship with God. God is the one that, that determines what comes next. Now, it's worth thinking about our relationship to the future. We as people... We're powerless to change the past, and I think we, we all know that. We inherently understand that we cannot control what's gone in the past. At, at best, we can control what we do in the present, but we are future-oriented people. Everybody here thinks about what's coming. Some think a little harder, their five chess moves ahead. Some don't think all that much, and they live mostly in the moment, but still, they have dreams, hopes, goals that occupy their mind. We, we all do. God put eternity in our hearts. He made us as people that are future oriented. And in part, that's given by him. We seek for something more than what is right now. And that's because, as, as we know, the, the earth is corrupt. It's crying out. It's groaning. It's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. And so we're looking for the fulfillment of the hope that Christ has put in us. And there's twisted perversions of that, that kind of hope in which we look forward and we try to grasp a hold of the wrong thing. But we live now, but looking into the future. And you can just think about that, you know, as, as you walk along a path, your feet are taking the steps that they take, but your eyes are looking to where you're going. And if you don't, you, you'll fall flat on your face. So you're, you're looking into the future, at least you, we think we are, and trying, trying to achieve a goal. But James says, you're ignorant of the future. And so the very orientation that we have, there's a veil placed over our eyes. And furthermore, the future is, is short for us. We're a vapor that appears and then vanishes away. And so like the preacher in Ecclesiastes, you could say vanity of vanities all is vanity. As soon as you try to grasp a hold of anything, it runs away from you. And so ought you even to make plans like this businessman. Today, tomorrow, we're gonna go travel to such and such a city, do some business, and make a profit. But James is not finished there. So in verse 15, we have a parallel to the statement in verse 13. Instead, you ought to say, this is what you do say. You say, we're going to go to this city, we're going to engage in business, we'll make a, make a profit. But this is what you ought to say. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or do that. Now, it's, it's hard to see in the English, but the, the language is parallel. So we're, we're going to live and we'll we'll do, we'll make. It's the, the same kind of word as the, the word in the N.S.B. that's translated spend. We're, we're going to go there and we're going to make a year in this city and we'll will do business and make a profit. He says, what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. And he's intentionally being nonspecific. So he doesn't repeat the statement with a, a clarified, if the Lord wills, we'll go to a city and make a profit. But just, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or do that. Now, they're not doing it. So verse 16 begins with a But. They, they don't have this life orientation or attitude, and they, they don't have it in their lips. There's, I, I've heard some people that repeat this with a, uh, a frequency and a, a zeal, and frequently will say, well, you, you don't have to say it, and there's some, some truth in that. We don't have to say in every sentence as the Lord wills. What, what matters is the orientation of our hearts, Are we living as Christians or as atheists in which we do not consider what God is up to? But what comes out of our lips changes us. And and especially in the U.S., as we become more agnostic and atheistic as a culture, we have a tendency to not to want to say things like this because they sound trite. But it's this kind of formula that reminds us God is the one sitting on the throne. He is the one that knows and sees tomorrow and determines what is coming up on the path for us. And so I, I think it would be a good thing to practice, to practice this kind of saying. It reminds us, it reminds our children, as the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. But the readers here, he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. And so he's interpreting the statement of verse 13, which seems benign at first. We're going to this city, and we're going we're gonna to engage in business. We'll travel about, and, and we'll see in a minute it may be a little more nefarious than that. And we'll make a profit. He says this, this kind of statement, when you subtract God from it and the will of the Lord, and you have that attitude, this is what I'm going to do. As it is, you boast. The the word is glory. It appears two other times in James. It appears in in the the Proverbs I quoted in Proverbs 27. Paul uses it frequently in the epistles to the church in Corinth. As it is, you boast. You you take glory in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The word translated arrogance here at its root is also a word about traveling, traveling. It has the concept of a vagrant. So you're traveling about and, and you're empty. You, you go from place to place and I think what you could conjure up in your mind with these combined words is to, to think about the, the quacks of the, the 18th century. So going about peddling some kind, of, uh, some kind of elixir that will heal you, but it's empty. You're really a vagrant begging from the hands of other people, begging through lies and uh, and underhanded deals, but it's a traveling vagrant. And he says, you boast, and you boast in your arrogance, in nothing, in emptiness. You take glory in nothing. We need to consider... We need to consider carefully what, what this boasting and glorying is, and we'll come back to that. Verse 17, I've made a lot of promises. We'll come back to that, so um, hopefully I'm not a liar. Verse 17, therefore, to the one who knows good to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is his conclusion. So he's, he's laid out what we should do, He's laid out the reason. The reason is you're ignorant of tomorrow, your life is like a vapor, so you should say as the Lord wills, you shouldn't boast and boast in your arrogance, but what you should do, the one who knows to do good and does not do it, and it's that same word doing that we've seen before, that one who knows the good thing, the beautiful thing, the excellent thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin, I, I pondered on, on this for a bit, how that conclusion comes from from his argument. He's arguing, you're ignorant, you don't know tomorrow, your life is temporary. Therefore, to the one who knows good to do and does not do it, to him it is, is sin. And, and I, I hope to flesh that out a little bit. But just first off, as you're thinking about your plans, because... This is written to James's readers, but it has application to us as we think about the future. We're future-oriented people, We, we take glory in the future. We, we shine a light on it, and we, we have hopes and dreams, and, and we'll, we'll speak to those. But what happens what happens is we fixate on a plan for the future, so what we think it should be, and it might be a good thing. So we'll see there are are some intrinsically evil plans for the future we can see from this passage, but it might be benign. It might even be good, the plan that we have for the future. We're going to raise a family. We're we're going to raise and take care of our children. We're going to provide for their needs, make them financially secure. Those are all good things. We're going to go to the city and and, uh, do business and make a profit, and maybe there's good motives. But... The one who knows good to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. When we do that, and we've reduced God, taken him out of the process, so we don't say as as the Lord wills, or we don't live as the Lord wills, and then God puts in front of us good. We have tunnel vision. So we, we, we've removed God, and the plans are what matter. And so we're fixated on these plans. So you can think about it financially. You're going to this city to do business, to engage, to make a profit, and along the way, you meet someone that's helpless. They're a beggar. You meet them on the road, like the story of the Good Samaritan. What, what do you do if you're going to be late to your meeting on which all of life hinges? What do you do if the only way to help them is to give up the... the nugget that you have that you're going to invest in order to provide for the long-term stability of your family. What then? If we've taken God and we say, well, this is my plan and this is what's a good plan and it doesn't matter what the will of the Lord is, then we will not do that good. Remember in the book of James, what's his admonition to us? This is what true religion is, to take care of widows and orphans in their distress. It's taken up from the Old Testament. This is where the nation of Israel failed. It's partially why they were put in captivity into Babylon, because there was no justice in the land. They were not caring for the orphans and the widows. Well, the question is, why? Why were they not doing that? It's it's because of these kinds of plans in which God is removed. It's no longer up to the will of God who sees tomorrow, who can see beyond the fog of our own vision. Instead we're fixated on what we see as important. So we'll come back to that, but first I want to go back through and look at this again. So why the language of a traveling merchant? Why do we why does James use this picture? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a city, spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. You would turn to Second Peter chapter two. So he uses a compound word there that's only used one other time in in the New Testament. And it's used in Second Peter chapter two. And the verse is running away from me. guess I should have marked that out because I can't find it on the fly here. But the translation is that they are coming to exploit you. And so the, the, First hmm? Verse three, thank you. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words and their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So that's that same word for traveling in the cities, engaging in business. And this kind of business here is a negative connotation. It's an exploitation in which, in chapter 2 of Second Peter, false prophets are rising among the people. They're false teachers and they're saying, all is going to continue just as it always was. Don't, don't listen to the words of Jesus. Instead, in their greed, they exploit you. They want to deceive you, to trick you in order to take a profit Jesus said something like this to, to the Pharisees. He says that you'll travel over land and sea in order to make a proselyte. And when you do, you make him twice a, son of, a hell as, uh, son of hell as yourselves. Throughout the New Testament, whether it's good or bad, this idea of profit is not just monetary. It's engaging in warfare for people. So taking, taking people. So the passage we read this morning out of Revelation chapter 18 in which Babylon, which is Jerusalem, is destroyed. The merchants are mourning, and specifically they're mourning because they have no place for their cargo. And if you pay special attention to what that cargo is, the very last word is human souls. So they're, they're trafficking in human souls. And I didn't think this up, so, so Jeff Myers wrote a, a commentary recently on, on James, and he pointed this out. And particularly thinking about the context in Acts. So people like Saul are going from city to city, from house to house, dragging out people. They're doing this. They're going from city to city. They're spending time there, and they're dragging out believers. They're engaged in this profiteering in which they're exploiting, trying to, pur- to teach false words and to subjugate. And in the readers of James, then we have both categories, The rich, the Judaizers who are going about persecuting, and those who are persecuted, who have been dispersed, who are spread out abroad, specifically because of this action. And so there's an encouragement there to those that are persecuted. Take heart. The judge is at the door. He sees what's happening. But I think when we read verses 13 through 17, we can bring in that language and see all the nefarious purposes that... that maybe going on within the camp of the high priest who sent, sent people like Saul out. But it's written, it's written in such a way that we, we read that and we're caught off guard because it sounds like us. It sounds like believers who make these kinds of statements. And thinking about, thinking about the persecuted church in the book of James that's been dispersed abroad, they're a victim to this. They should know this quite well, right? James says, you don't know what your life is or what tomorrow will be like. You're ignorant. Your life is vanishing. It's a vapor in the wind. And they should understand that. This should be ground into them at this point. They've been uprooted. They've been cast out of their homes. They're, they're in a new place and they're suffering. So they should know that the plans of men don't stand up against the counsel of God. They should know better than to boast in tomorrow. And yet still James is giving this admonition because we, like them, we forget. And we forget really, really quickly. For most of us, we've suffered, we've suffered some kinds of setbacks, some, some, some ways in life in, in which God has twisted and turned on its head our plans. Life didn't turn out the way that we expected. And if we have faith, we see through that. We see that God is good still, but we forget. We forget, and, and, and the next day, we again, we make plans, just like this. We're going to travel, we'll go from city to city, we'll, we'll, we'll make a profit. And all of that is fine. The problem is verse 16. The problem is when we boast in tomorrow. When we boast in arrogance. All such boasting is evil. If you would turn back with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, after he introduces his purpose about joy in the midst of suffering and, and calling on people to have wisdom, he follows on it with verses 9 through 11, an encouragement to both the poor and the rich. And it's this on this that James draws on in this passage. So James chapter 1, verse 9, let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. It's, that, that word glory is the word that's translated boast in chapter four. It's the same word. So if you're down low, if you're suffering, glory, rejoice, boast in your high position. And that, that high position, it, it means in the heights where God is seated. So think, think about the book of Ephesians, we're seated together with God in the heavenlies. It's that word. Up on high, as far as the, uh, we won't be separated from the love of God, it, it's, it's height, depth, width, breadth. It's that height, we're set up with God in the heights, and he says, let the brother who's brought down low, who's humbled, boast in the heights, in this high position. And so, when we look at life, and God in his wisdom brings us low like Job, as we'll see in a, in a few weeks when he brings us low in the midst of suffering, like Job, he says, rejoice, boast in this. And that's what Paul does. He says, if I'm going to boast, and I will boast because there is, there is a good thing to boast in, there's a good tomorrow to take glory in. But if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in my weakness because in my weakness, his power is perfected. His grace is shown to be sufficient. And we see who we are. And that's what verses 10 and 11 show us. He says, corresponding to that so just like the brother of humble circumstances let him glory in the heights let him boast in his high position let the rich man similarly do in his humiliation and so when we're rich and God brings us low boast in that boast in what God does in his work boast in the will of the Lord because because like the flower and grass he will pass away for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Remember, here he's alluding to, uh, well, there's Psalms, but uh, the, the one I want to bring to mind is Isaiah 40, where he's he's alluding to this this statement that the flower will will fall off. The grass, it's, it's going to wither and fade away. And I, I, we've been reading through Isaiah as part of the Bible reading plan, so I, I talked to my kids, well, what does, this, what does this mean? And now they use my words, they'll tell me, well, it means your meat sack's going to fall off. You're going to die and be just a hunk of bones that disintegrates into dust. This is what happens to us. Let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. That That those riches, everything that we take pride in. And specifically here in James, he he lends it the idea to us in, in terms of money. But of course throughout the Bible we see more than that. We we can be rich in other ways. So Paul when he when he's talking about what people boast in the 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 Jews they boast in power, the Greeks they boast in wisdom. And then he quotes out of Jeremiah chapter 9. If anybody's going to boast, there's only one thing to boast in. Not power, not wisdom, not riches, not wealth, not idols. But let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And particularly for this reason. Because everything else fades away. Right? If you remember what Isaiah says. The grass withers, the flower fades, but... The word of the Lord endures. It remains. And so God brings suffering. He brings trouble. And that trouble burns us up. Remember, God's word looks down on us and it's like the sun exposed in fullness and wither. But underneath, for those that are born out of the goodness and the will of God, chapter 1, verse 9, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by His word. We are birthed from God's word. And God's word is, is what endures and remains. So, glory, boast. Let the poor man boast in the heights of what God has done. He's placed him in the heights, in the heavenlies with him. He's made him by his word unto this end, that we who are poor will be made rich, That we who are down, who are brought low, will be lifted up and exalted into the highest with him because we're birthed by his word as people of him. So he encourages us in chapter 1, look at that word, know who you are, so that when trouble comes, rejoice, glory in it like Paul does. When he's beaten and he's whipped, he rejoices, he boasts in it because God is perfecting him. Remember what the author of the Hebrews says in in Hebrews chapter 2. He says that the author of our salvation, if it was fitting for him to be perfected by many sufferings, how much more for us? Let's turn back, back to James chapter 4. So this kind of boasting... The one that boasts in arrogance, the one that boasts in vagrancy, emptiness, that travels about from city to city, picking up nothing. Emptiness. That kind of boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the good thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, remember, the admonition to us is do not be like the Judaizers who are going from house to house. God can transform them. He did for Saul. He turned him into Paul. He changed him, but don't be like them. Don't be the one that ignores the will of the Lord who makes plans and fixates on them outside of what God has declared. And theologians, they, they, they discriminate among the wills of God and there's value in that. But today, all that matters is the differentiation between the will that God has revealed. So he tells us in his word what he wants. And not just morally what he wants, but also the direction that we're going. Remember, in the, in the book of Hebrews, he tells us that faith is grasping out, reaching a hold of what God has promised, because when we want it, when we pursue it, God is not ashamed to be called our God. So, to this person, we glory in that kind of future, so not the one that we've constructed, not the steps that we do not know whether they're part of that future or not, but the one that God has told us. This is what is revealed. So we boast and we glory in that because it's sure, it's, it's a sure thing that God is bringing his people through, that he's building his kingdom. We boast and we glory that. the light shine in our lives in that. So when you're thinking about the future, the school you go to, the houses you build, the people you marry... All of those we do not know. We don't know what's going to happen. We're ignorant. And as God reveals it to us along the way in real time, the only response we can have is to rejoice because we know what He's doing. We may not see the path through to the end, but we know the end and we trust God that he's bringing us through for that purpose, to make us perfect and complete, using James' word, to give us wisdom, to bring us up into the heights, to talk with him in the, in the storm cloud. So along the way, when we have that attitude, this is the good thing. It's a good thing to have that attitude, but that's not the only good thing in verse 17. When we do that, then we're set free to do what's good and what's beautiful. We're set free from our passions that enslave us, our ideas of what tomorrow should hold, and we're set free to do the very good thing, the good deeds that God sets in front, of us, to care, in front of us, to care for the orphans and the widows, to speak kindly to our brothers, to lift them up, as we'll see in chapter 5, to go to them and and to bring salvation by rebuke and forgiveness. We're set free to do what's good and beautiful and right, and it's only in that understanding, in saying, as the Lord wills. Remember, that? that's what Jesus says as he, as he goes to the cross. He prays, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours be done, because ultimately we fall in line with God. Our life is bound up with his plan. So we're, we're running out of time, but this is God's admonition to us. Do not be confused by the deceitful lies of Satan. They're a twist, a perversion of what God says is good and right. God, we, we rightly seek glory. We seek out what's good and right and, and the glory of the future. But the devil would have us believe that that kind of glory can be achieved by taking shortcuts. There's one author that said that the, the road to God's glory is crooked. It, it, it twists, not, not in a moral, morally crooked way. It's crooked because we, we do not see the path straight in front of us. John writes about it this way. He uses that word boast, and and it's the word, the boastful pride of life that he uses in in 1 John chapter 2. He says that boastful pride of life, Satan would have us to to think that life will continue as it always has, that it's not transitory, that we're not seeking a life after life, that we're not building up to the kingdom that God is building, but instead our own. And that we can make plans and keep them. That God's good and right command to subdue the earth and fulfill it. He would say that it means that we subdue it for ourselves and fill it with our image. And so there's an admonition here. For those that are young, most of your life lies ahead of you. Because of this, it's easy to dream about. It's easy to boast in and take glory in what will be when you graduate from that college or you marry that person or you buy that way overpriced house that's coming up around the bend Those are all fine and good activities, but James reminds us, Solomon reminds us in Proverbs chapter 20, 27, do not boast in the future because you do not know what it will give birth to. He says instead, let your praise, let your glory come from another. And the word there in in Proverbs 27 is from a stranger. And let those who are aliens say good things about you. It means that you've done those good deeds so that those around you see it and they're the ones that shine the light of God's glory upon you so that, so that all can see. So make your plans. Go to school. Make money. Buy your houses, but do not boast in what is not promised. Rejoice when God changes your plans. Rejoice when cryptocurrency falls through the, the bottom and you lose your money. Rejoice. God is good. This was part of his good plan. There is a future to boast about and to take glory in. God has revealed us what that end is. That's what James is talking about. We boast in that. All who belong in him are made for that future. When our plans are short-sighted and God brings suffering and twists in the path, don't be discouraged. These are for our good. For those like me, fathers and mothers, we stand in between. We have half our lives behind us and maybe half before us, maybe a lot less. And our dreams are a little bit different. You think about, I'm I'm raising my children. There's a good idea there, something good that I'm, I'm commanded to do. And I want my children's future, I want it to be peaceful. I want it to be secure. I want it to be financially secure. But I can take that and twist it so that that kind of plan becomes the end for which we're living. And then we do not see what God is calling us to today. We don't see when the schools have gone haywire. We don't see when the the kinds of businesses and practices that we're encouraging them to will, will lead them astray. So instead, keep your eyes fixed on what Jesus has promised. Remember, our plans are subservient to the revealed, promised will of God. We are not called to leverage God's gifts to us for our plans. Meaning God gives us good gifts. We can take and, and, and we can extend them at credit. So think of our children. Many, many I've seen have fallen in this way, where you take your children and, and you lend them out for a future. So you, you fill them with all kinds of knowledge, but not necessarily good knowledge, for the purpose of making money. It's not a bad thing, but it can bring ruin. And so the father that leaves a good inheritance to his children the one that endures from generation to generation, the one that gives an inheritance to his children's children. It's not just money, although it may be that, but what's better is the treasure that's stored up in heaven so that if you have to choose, you choose that, the end for which God made us. When the Lord who made heaven and earth empties our barn and all that we have becomes worthless and the world realizes that Apple products and all that we've invested in goes away, Don't become embittered. Instead, rejoice. Take joy that our good God sees fit to burn away that which is meaningless so that the word endures and his justice is seen through. To those that are older, I'm not there yet. So I can't speak, but God does. Right? You look backwards on life and most of it's gone by already. There's still life to come. Remember that there is a Life after life. God's already given us life, the fullness of life, and so this is not the end. And that means that our days and our barns should be used for good, to do good deeds, to bring about the fullness of what God has promised. Don't look back with bitterness on the suffering, but instead see what God is doing and use your wisdom to remind us who are younger that God is good. He's faithful. And he will bring us through to the end. And use your wisdom to remind us that God's sovereignty, the fact that we're ignorant, we can see that as a bad thing. But every promise that he fulfills, he's good. And so, like the ruling from two days ago, was unexpected. We may have expected it for eight weeks, but we didn't expect it before that. That comes from a hand of a good God who does things beyond our expectation. And so as much as our bank accounts may be emptied at times or we're even removed from our homes, remind us, God is faithful. He's good. And for all of us, let's hear God's word as he speaks to us through the book of James. As the Lord wills, so goes our lives. He is the one that holds our lot. And as the psalmist says, he holds it and it's fallen for us in pleasant places. Even when things look a little rough, he holds our lot. He holds our inheritance and he is a good heavenly father. If you would pray with me, please rise and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement and warning that comes from your word. Lord, we don't want to be atheists in word or in deed. And so we pray that you would fill us with the right kind of faith that grasp the hold of not our ideas, but what you promised, the future that you have laid up for us. And Lord, we pray, we pray that you would, you would help us to be faithful in teaching and living and saying and doing what it means that you are bringing us to the end. We pray that you would, you would, grasp a hold of us to keep us firm, that we would overcome unto that end, that you would make us perfect and complete. We pray that as a body we would be faithful when the storms come, that we would not be those that judge and doubt, but that we would stand secure because we're birthed of and filled up with your word. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.